Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. The Night Stalker. Imagine, if you will, ladies and gentlemen, that as you sleep at night, safe and snug in your bed, outside your window lurks a predator of unimaginable evil, a psychopathic killer and sexual sadist waiting to ease your window open, slip silently inside your home to rob, rape, torture, and murder you, to rip your eyeballs from your head and paint the walls with your blood. A monster dedicated to literally being as inhumanly evil as possible. A murderer who used guns, knives, hammers, tire irons, machetes, handcuffs, electrical cords, and his own bare hands to kill with. Today, we cover Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And tonight, you will be checking the locks on your doors and windows. For this will be one of our most terrifying episodes yet. Let's begin. In the summer of 1985, Los Angeles was in the midst of a record-breaking heat wave. But as temperatures stretched up into the triple digits, folks were afraid to leave their windows open. For the city and environs were also gripped with fear over a raging serial killer. Newspaper headlines and television news were filled with horrific and bizarre stories of people mutilated, tortured, and murdered in their own homes, causing a full-on panic. Gun stores had lines around the block forming before they'd even opened. Locksmiths were working nearly 24 hours a day. Self-defense classes were selling out. Like freeway killers Patrick Kearney, Randy Kraft, and William Bonin, whom we've covered on this podcast before, this new serial killer was taking advantage of the highways and byways of the Los Angeles area, attacking and then disappearing into traffic. But unlike the freeway killers or the hillside stranglers before him, who all had specific targets, namely sex workers and hitchhikers, this killer seemed to be attacking completely at random. Rich, poor, young, old, Asian, white, Hispanic, man or woman, no one was safe. And worst of all, he attacked while they slept, safe, seemingly, in their homes. And this is what makes the Night Stalker so scary to me. You know, I don't know. I don't believe in evil in like a spiritual way like some folks do. Like, I don't believe in the, the devil or demons or hell. But if there was such a thing or is such a thing as evil incarnate or demons rising from the abyss of hell to take human form, this is the case. It's just absolutely terrifying. He's the one out of all of them that scares the shit out of me so bad. I go and literally lock my door at night and check the windows 
just knowing monsters like this can exist. I completely agree. It's, I mean, we'll get into it and you'll hear for yourselves, but just the thought of your safe space being just made a playground for, for somebody to kind of like a challenge to just get in and, and ugh, like you talked about in the intro with the pla- painting, the walls with blood and just, ugh. And, and like you said, locking your windows, like actually taking action. Like most of the time you read something, you know, that the freeway killers that we covered didn't have me taking an actual action afterwards. You read about Richard Ramirez or Ted Bundy and you go and you actually check to make sure your windows are locked at night. Yeah. Uh, but as Richard would later say, quote, I was in alliance with the evil that is inherent in human nature. And that was who I was. Walking death. Psychopaths have no ethics, no scruples, and no conscience. Something inside is gone. They just aren't capable of those emotions. That's why killing is so easy for a real psychopath. End quote. So scary. Um, I think this is the last time that a crazy killer like really held a populace in utter fear. You know, like the entire area was just terrified. Similar to like what the son of Sam did or the Zodiac killer, the Hillside Stranglers, the Manson family, just entire cities paralyzed with fear. And, you know, this area is huge. Los Angeles alone is made up of 96 separate communities. And people were so scared of this guy coming that they would paint their house different colors because it was believed he targeted yellow houses and which he actually did for some weird reason. And I don't know, my house is actually yellow. <laughs> I've always wanted to paint it. Uh, maybe this is a good time. <laughs> uh, police would come on televisions and tell people, lock your doors, lock your windows, beware. It's, uh, weirdly, my house used to be yellow and I paint, we painted it a few years ago. So we're, we're safe. You're safe. From... <laughs> um, yeah, I and I, that's a really interesting point because... When we were talking earlier, just a few minutes ago, about having the whole populist script with fear, that was my first thought is that, like, that almost doesn't happen any. It doesn't happen anymore. There's, I don't know. I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about this on other episodes where we've we've kind of hypothesized, like, has the age of serial killers morphed into the age of mass shooters? It does seem like that has kind of been where the... The tide has turned. Um, and then, the you know, the mass shooters, it's like one and done. And then they're taken out or whatever. And they, you know, they hold a place in fear for like that day. But it's not so much fear as like horror and, you know, grief. And it's different. This really, it's a good point about this being the last time that like one area was just completely gripped with panic. So yeah, with DNA and, and all the surveillance footage that's around, these guys just can't really do it anymore, luckily, which is a, yeah. definitely a good thing. And well, this one's been requested many times. And uh, like I said, it's uh, really one of the most terrifying of all the cases to me. But we've got some newer information that's come out, as well as some investigative work of our own. Uh, there's always talk about devil worshiping in this case and how Richard read the Satanic Bible and rumors that. He'd been made an honorary member of the Church of Satan. 
So we reached out to the Church of Satan and have an exclusive response as to what's true and what's not. And we've got all kinds of incredibly interesting facts about Richard's life as a child, his parents' spiritual beliefs, and how they could have colored his own. It sounds fascinating and completely terrifying. It is. Well, let's get into it. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Act One. Julian and Mercedes. The Night Stalker was born Ricardo Ivia Munez Ramirez on February 29, 1960, in El Paso, Texas, to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. Richie, as he was called, was the youngest of five children. His father, Julian, was Mexican and grew up in the small town of Camargo, working on the family farm. Julian was taken out of school in the first grade to be a farm laborer working from sunup to sundown. Richie's mother had been born in Colorado and was a United States citizen. But at the start of World War II, the family moved back to their ancestral homeland of Camargo, Mexico, where she met Julian and the two fell in love. And on August 9th, 1948, Julian and Mercedes married. Though her family did not approve of him, as Julian was uneducated and just dirt poor. But they were young and in love and dedicated. Mercedes was, as mentioned, an American citizen and started work over the border in El Paso, Texas. After a while, the newlyweds decided to move there as well, living in a small apartment on 4th and Canal. Soon, Mercedes was pregnant and Julian was overjoyed, eager to have a son whom he would ensure had an education and would achieve everything Julian hadn't, the American dream. During this time, the United States was conducting nuclear bomb tests in nearby Los Alamos, and the fallout from these bombs would regularly fall in El Paso, causing a high rate of birth defects. And when Mercedes and Julian's first child, Reuben, was born, he was covered in golf ball-sized lumps over his neck and head. His respiration was slow and labored. His blood pressure dangerously low. Uh, he had to be put in an incubator, and a priest was even called in to give the newborn his last rites. Julian and Mercedes prayed reverently, and in a few days, the lumps disappeared, and little Reuben became healthy, something they considered a miracle bestowed by Jesus Christ. They soon had another child, again a son, named Jose, Jose appeared healthy at first, but he too had problems. His bones weren't growing right, and his kneecaps weren't developing correctly, a condition called Collier's disease, believed to be a result of nuclear fallout. The child was seriously handicapped and would need multiple surgeries, but their problems were just starting. Although Julian hadn't received all his paperwork for his green card, he'd already started working on a road crew. He was a hard worker and his boss loved him. But when government agents showed up demanding everyone's papers, he was deported back to Mexico. Mercedes, Ruben, and little Jose, who were all born in the United States and were American citizens, were also somehow deported as well. All of their belongings dumped on the side of the road in the rain by the Santa Fe Bridge. The family moved into Mercedes' mother's house in Juarez, and Julian immediately found employment as a police officer, 
which frightened Mercedes, as Mexican policemen were often murdered by criminal gangs. They had another son, Robert, and eventually Julian's citizenship papers came through, and the family were able to move back to El Paso in the spring of 1954. Julian found work in the United States laying railroad track. It was backbreaking labor, but he proved himself to be a hard worker, though he often had to spend many days away from the family. And Mercedes then gave birth to another child, this time a girl named Ruth. They were a deeply religious family. Mercedes in particular, fearful of the power of Satan to corrupt. The boys went to school and learned English, which made Julian very proud. He only knew Spanish. But the Ramirez's had done it. They'd found the American dream. But Julian had a particular issue. He was just really easily angered. He'd get completely pissed over something, often very small, and just fly into these rages and start smashing things. And that's a trait both Reuben and Ruth inherited as well. Ruth saying when she became angry, she would get so mad she'd actually black out. That's pretty pissed off. Uh, Luckily, Julian kept his rage and violence mostly focused on inanimate objects. So uh, he was determined to not be violent with the children. Apparently, his father had beaten him and he did not want to be like that and did not want to be violent with the children. But unfortunately, that would slowly change. Mercedes worked in a factory manufacturing boots, using dangerous chemicals with no ventilation. She was often fatigued and nauseous, racked with cramps in her joints, when she found she was pregnant yet again. It was an incredibly difficult pregnancy, doctors believing the chemicals she was exposed to were causing her body to reject the fetus. In her fifth month of pregnancy, under doctor's advice, she quit working at the factory. And on February 29th at 2.07 a.m., Richard Ramirez came into the world. His older sister Ruth was delighted to have a younger brother. And Julian, too, was elated. He now had four sons to carry on the Ramirez name. And little Richie didn't seem to have any issues from the dangerous chemicals his mother had inhaled while pregnant or from the fallout from Los Alamos. He was a bright, happy baby with a beautiful face and long, dark eyelashes. Ruth, in particular, loved to spoil him, treating him like a baby doll. And even from a very young age, as a toddler, Richie loved music and would happily dance about to the radio. Unfortunately, the other Ramirez children were all facing serious issues. Joseph had undergone 15 operations, had difficulty walking, had to wear special shoes, and was often teased in school. Robert had learning disabilities and had to be put in special classes. Reuben began to have problems as well, arguing and fighting and refusing to follow instructions. When Reuben brought home a report card with failing grades, Julian beat him with a garden hose, breaking his vow to never be violent with the children. Reuben really was like the problem child of the family. He just had that teenage tough guy thing going on, and he was always fighting and always getting in trouble. And Julian's rages were getting worse and worse. One day while working on the car, Julian grew so frustrated trying to install a filter that he went to the house and beat his head against it until blood was pouring out and covering his face, just absolutely terrifying the children. But there were wonderful bright spots. After 11 years of hard work, 
the Ramirez family was finally able to buy a house on Lido Street in Lincoln, a one-story tract home with three bedrooms, a large kitchen and backyard near the Cardova Cemetery, the ultimate symbol of the American dream, owning your own home. They'd truly made it. But Julian was still often away from the family for days at a time working, and Reuben, ever the problem child, grew worse. Now he was hanging out with a really bad group. They were sniffing glue, causing all kinds of mayhem, and even started breaking into homes. When Richie was just two years old, he suffered a severe head injury. It would be the first of many. He loved the radio, loved music. His whole life, he'd been passionate about music. Well, the radio was sitting on top of a large dresser, so he began to climb up the dresser using the drawers as a ladder to get to the radio and turn it on. But the dresser toppled forward, slamming right on top of him. He was struck hard in the head, knocking him unconscious, gashing his head open. After being rushed to the hospital, he received 30 stitches, doctors saying he'd suffered a severe concussion. And then his brother Reuben was arrested for stealing a car with his friends. And Julian, Julian was livid. No one had ever been arrested in the Ramirez family before. And Julian had been a policeman and prided himself on being a law-abiding and upstanding citizen. Reuben had brought shame on the Ramirez family. And when Reuben was released from jail, Julian beat him mercilessly, terrifying the rest of the family. In particular, little Richie, who trembled and wept at his brother's cries. Reuben was arrested yet again after this, this time for breaking into a house. And again, Julian beat him, little Richie being rocked in his mother's arms as the thrashing went on, Mercedes fervently praying to Jesus to end the madness while she tried to console terrified little Richie. And Julian's senseless rages over seemingly nothing continued as well. Once, having grown irate as he attempted to replace a drain in the kitchen sink, he began to beat himself in the head with a hammer. Richard would say that this image haunted him the rest of his life. The image of his father beating himself in the head with a hammer, blood flowing down over his face as he bellowed, lost in rage. And it is a fucking scary image of your father hitting himself in the head with a hammer till blood's pouring over his face. Yeah, that's just crazy. Yeah. Despite all this, Richie was an active and imaginative child, often playing alone while the others were in school, acting out dramas of cowboys and Indians, able to amuse himself for hours in his little fantasies. But when he was five, he suffered another horrible head injury, this time being hit in the head with a swing at the community playground. Again, he was knocked unconscious, suffered a severe concussion, and had to get a whole mess of stitches. Then, when Richie was in the fifth grade, he had an epileptic seizure in the middle of class, falling to the ground and going into convulsions. The seizure was followed by another soon after it. He'd also have petite mall attacks where he'd just stare off into space, completely lost from reality. Doctors said he was suffering from mild epilepsy, but would grow out of it. He wasn't treated, given any medication, but the doctors appeared to be right, for as he became a teenager, the seizures became less frequent and then pretty much stopped altogether. Richard loved television shows like Dark Shadows. 
He loved monster movies and horror movies to the point of obsession where he would dream about monsters at night. And sometimes he'd stare out the window and see actual vampires and werewolves lurking in the shadows. These hallucinations are now believed to be part of his epilepsy and thought to have happened during petite mal seizure episodes. But he was a good student, friendly, and loved to make people laugh. Never got into fights like his brother Reuben and Robert. His favorite brother was Joseph, who still struggled to walk. Richard would help his big brother the best he could. But there was an incredibly dark secret. Reuben and Robert were being molested by a teacher at school named Frank McMahon. Frank McMahon was a serial child predator who would abuse dozens of children, targeting troubled children and those with learning disabilities, keeping them after school and meeting with them in private, all under the guise that he was helping them. McMahon would even go to the Ramirez house when Mercedes and Julian were working and molest the boys there. And it's believed he molested Richard as well during these visits. Little Richie was only seven years old. And Reuben continued to get in trouble with the law, repeatedly getting arrested for breaking and entering and stealing cars, each time accompanied by a savage beating from Julian. Reuben was also getting into drugs, weed, pills, often supplied by his cousin Miguel, or Mike, as everyone called him. Cousin Mike. Cousin Mike was a known tough guy and street fighter with raging anger issues, who will become a big part of this story. And Julian did not like Cousin Mike at all and would constantly tell Reuben he was not allowed to fraternize with his delinquent cousin. But in 1965, Cousin Mike joined the army and was sent off to fight in Vietnam. Julian's harsh discipline, irrational anger, and quick fuse not only didn't help the situation with his children, it soon caused the older boys to all move away. Reuben headed out to California to try his luck in Los Angeles, and Joseph and Robert got an apartment together. Now it was just little Richie left at the house. Richie did well in school. He was a great athlete. He was the quarterback for the high school football team, and he was just incredibly proud of that. There's pictures of him in his shoulder pads and uniform, just looking so happy and smiling at the camera. But one night, at the very end of a game, he had an epileptic seizure right there on the playing field. And instead of being sympathetic, the coach immediately kicked him off the team. And Richard was obviously just completely devastated, humiliated, and embarrassed. The wind just sucked from his sails. The truth was, there was medication he could have been given, but it was never suggested. He was off the team, and that was that. Richard was only 12 years old. And after getting kicked off the football team, Richard just seemed to lose all interest in school. He started drinking and smoking pot, like his brothers, hell, like all the kids in the neighborhood. And then, Cousin Mike returned home from Vietnam. And this is where the story gets really dark and weird. Up to this point, Richie seems like he was a really sweet kid. He was always happy and smiling, loved music. He didn't get into fights. He did well in school, was athletic and imaginative. But his father was constantly working. And when he was home, he was incredibly strict and quick to anger over anything. 
His brothers all had issues of their own and had moved away, so Richie was looking for a father figure, someone to guide him as he entered puberty. And unfortunately, he found it in Cousin Mike. Act 2. Cousin Mike, the Desert, and the Graveyard. After joining the Army in 1965, Cousin Mike was put into Special Forces and became a Green Beret, trained in unconventional warfare, special reconnaissance, and combat. Mike had done two tours of duty in Vietnam and bragged of having 29 confirmed kills. At one point, his entire platoon of 20 men had been surrounded by Viet Cong during a battle, and only Mike and another man had made it out alive. Cousin Mike returned to West Texas a decorated war hero, eager to brag about his exploits. He had loved being in war. He loved guerrilla fighting. He loved killing. He'd sit around slamming Budweiser's, happily telling anyone who listened how the Viet Cong believed a person couldn't get to heaven if they'd lost a body part. So Mike and the other Special Forces members would hack their bodies up, saving parts, making necklaces out of human ears. He'd also tell how raping the enemy's women was an actual tactic of war to sow terror and fear in the populace. And to Richard, his cousin Mike was a bona fide hero whom he adored and spent time with whenever he had the chance. With his brothers gone and his abusive father off at work for weeks at a time, cousin Mike became a surrogate father to the now 12-year-old Richie. Mike would tell the adoring little Richie, Having power over life and death was a high, an incredible rush. It was godlike. You controlled who live and die. In war, you were God. Cousin Mike had brought back a box of Polaroid pictures he'd taken during his two tours of duty in the jungles of Vietnam. Photographs of unimaginable brutality and carnage he would gleefully show Little Richie. There were Polaroids of mutilated bodies, of torture, and rape. Some of the pictures were of Vietnamese women on their knees filleting Cousin Mike while he held a pistol to their heads. These would be followed by photos of the same women now dead and decapitated, Cousin Mike proudly displaying their severed heads to the camera. Richard Ramirez was 12 years old when he was being shown these photographs of horrendous war crimes. And these photos had a profound impact on little Richie. They both aroused and horrified him. And he'd often find himself masturbating at night over the images. In his mind... Sex was being equated with savage cruelty and violence, creating a lifelong obsession with sadism, power, and death, all entwined erotically. Mike also brought back eight shrunken heads, which he used to like to drunkenly display for visitors. For those who aren't aware, a shrunken head is when the skull is removed from the flesh of a human head and the hollow shell is then stuffed, the eyes and mouth stitched shut, the skin shrinking and mummifying. Cousin Mike said he'd used these shrunken heads as pillows in Vietnam. Richie became Cousin Mike's protege. Mike taught him how to fight and always win. The fundamentals of hand-to-hand combat how to kill using his bare hands. He taught him the nuances of jungle warfare, 
how to be invisible, to move with stealth and silence, to lurk in shadows undetected. Richie, meanwhile, completely gave up on school. As his grades plummeted, Julian would become irate and beat him, once even tying him to a gravestone in the nearby cemetery as punishment. But Richie learned to just avoid his father. He'd keep his sleeping bag handy, and when his father flew into one of his rages, Richie would, quick as a jackrabbit, grab his sleeping bag and dart out into the desert, often sleeping in the cemetery, finding something magical and peaceful there, especially on the full moon when you could see perfectly and move easily through the night. Richie spent a lot of time alone in the desert in order to escape his father's wrath taking a 22 rifle with him and hunting rabbits and the occasional coyote, relishing cutting them open and gutting them, feeding the viscera to the family dog. Cousin Mike married a feisty redhead named Jessie, and they soon had two kids, but it was a very tense and unhappy family. Mike didn't work, didn't do much of anything besides lay around drinking and bragging about his exploits in Vietnam or driving around with Richie smoking weed. The family was struggling, and he brought in no income at all, all of which obviously pissed Jessie off, and she wasn't afraid to let him know how she felt. On May 4th, 1973, Richie and Mike were playing pool at Mike's house. As Mike drank beer and regaled his cousin with tales of rape and murder in the jungles of Vietnam, Mike's wife Jessie came home in a particularly irritated mood. She angrily began to harangue Mike over his unemployment and constant pot smoking, telling him he was a lazy, no-good bum. Little Richie then watched as Cousin Mike calmly lifted a thirty-eight revolver and shot his wife point-blank in the face. Mike told the astonished Richie to go home and not tell a soul that he had been there and seen it happen. Richie did as he was told, returned home, dazed, confused, not telling anyone. Mike was arrested for the murder and asked Julian to go to the apartment and receive some personal effects. Julian did, bringing little Richie with him. There was still a large puddle of blood on the carpet. It was an event that Richard would remember the rest of his life, as he himself would later say, that day I went back to that apartment, it was like some kind of mystical experience. It was all quiet and still and hot in there. You could smell the dried blood. Particles of dust just seemed to hover in the air. I looked at the place where Jesse had fallen and died, and I got this kind of tingly feeling. It was the strangest thing. Then my father told me to look in her pocketbook for this jewelry my cousin wanted, and I dumped Jessie's pocketbook on the bed and looked through her things. It gave me the weirdest feeling. I mean, I knew her, and these were her things, and she was dead, murdered, gone, and I was touching her things. Oh, God, that guy's so fucking creepy. Well, Mike went to trial, but the jury had sympathy for him. He was a decorated war hero and was obviously struggling with extreme PTSD. So the jury found him not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, and he was sent off to a mental institution. Oh, good grief. <laughs> uh, in a bizarre side story, Julian tried to gain custody of Mike's two children and became embroiled in a custody battle with Jesse's mother, who went to a Mexican witch doctor and had a curse put on him. Julian became deathly ill and had to be hospitalized. 
but hired his own witch doctor and eventually recovered. Having these warring Mexican witch doctors just goes to show how deeply superstitious the Ramirez family was. And Richie, meanwhile, now 13 years old, he decided to head off to sunny Southern California to visit his brother Ruben and jumped on a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles. Ruben had married and started a little family, but had not given up his life of crime. In fact, he'd taken it to a new level and become a professional thief. Ruben hung out in the North Hollywood Greyhound bus terminal, where a lot of very seedy criminals congregated, and he proudly introduced his little brother to all the thieves, pickpockets, burglars, and prostitutes. Los Angeles just blew Richie's mind. He loved California. The beaches filled with beautiful, bikini-clad women. All of the wealth and money and rich people. And the porn theaters and sex shops. The sex workers lurking everywhere on the streets. It was like an amusement park of vice and sin. Reuben took his little brother along on some burglaries, teaching him how to pick locks, open windows, to always be on the lookout for guard dogs and alarms. Richie loved it, that strange feeling of being in a stranger's house, looking over their things, taking what he wanted, and it extended to his sexuality as well. He began to fantasize about tying women up and sexually assaulting them, taking whatever he wished from them. When Richie returned to El Paso, he was changed. He grew his hair long, started smoking weed in earnest all day taking acid and eating psychedelic mushrooms now as well, and completely dropping out of school, spending more and more nights in the graveyard in his sleeping bag. His sister Ruth had married, and Richie began to spend time with her husband, Roberto, who was a sexual deviant. Roberto and Richie would go out in the night, lurking in the shadows, to peer into windows at unsuspecting women and masturbate. Richie lost in fantasies of bondage and violence. And this shit is just so disturbing to think about. He's just like this little 14-year-old kid standing beside a full-grown man, both of them pleasuring themselves as they stare into strangers' windows. It's just beyond a perfect storm. It's like he's going to serial killer school or something. Every event in his life is guiding him towards becoming an absolute monster. Richie began to work at the Holiday Inn, taking his newfound criminal habits there as well, breaking into rooms and stealing, peering into windows and masturbating while fantasizing about violence and death. He managed to come upon a passkey that would open any door, and Richard would creep into rooms while the guests slept, silent, cat-like, using a pen light to guide him just as both his brother Reuben and his cousin Mike had taught him. One night, Richard decided to turn his violent sexual fantasies into reality. Using his passkey, he entered the room of a beautiful woman he'd stalked earlier and hid in the closet, waiting in there as she showered. As she left the bathroom, he leapt out and grabbed her from behind. He bound and gagged her, And as he was removing her underwear and preparing to rape her, the door suddenly swung open and her husband walked in. He was a huge man and promptly beat the living shit out of Richie, knocking him unconscious 
battering his face with his fists until he was unrecognizable. And Richard woke up in the hospital, handcuffed to the gurney, 30 fresh stitches in his face. Richie denied that he'd been about to rape the woman, instead claiming she had invited him into the room and started flirting with him. The couple, who lived out of town, just wanted to put it all behind them and didn't return to El Paso to testify, and the charges were dropped. And meanwhile, Cousin Mike was released from the Texas State Mental Hospital, and he and little Richie rekindled their friendship. Now 15 years old, Richard wasn't a naive and innocent child anymore. His eyes had grown hard and cruel, and Mike respected how he was able to keep his mouth shut and resumed his training, teaching him how only the strong and ruthless survive in the world. Together, they started a thievery ring. Richard began burglarizing homes, now under the tutelage of his Green Beret cousin, who guided him, teaching him to watch out for gravel, clotheslines, and garbage cans, to stick to the shadows and look for places with poor lighting and concealed entrances, telling him, You always have to be prepared, Richie. After all, life is like living in the jungle. It's a fucking dog-eat-dog world, and if you don't eat first, you get eaten. Period. It's that simple. By the time of his 16th birthday, Richie's thievery had earned him the nickname dedos, or fingers in English. His quick fingers would take anything that wasn't bolted down. Richie fantasized about a life in Los Angeles. All the vast wealth out there for the taking, and thought of his time as a thief in small town El Paso as training for when he made the big move. He mastered the art of being a cat burglar, learning how to silently open windows, move cautiously and slowly, hunched to the ground on the balls of his feet, cat-like, with steady breathing, remaining calm and cool and absolutely fearless, feeling out the night. He studied which houses were best, those with trees obscuring the entrances, with plenty of shadows to creep in and out of. He learned where people stored their valuables, what was worth taking and what wasn't. He learned to differentiate between fake jewelry and real ones, to feel what was actual gold and what was just gold-plated. He learned to slink like a ghost through yards, into houses and back out, pockets stuffed with loot, and to always be gone into the night, disappearing into traffic, undetected. As he himself later said, It's an easy thing to steal. Any jerk could do it. But to steal and not get caught, ever, that's something else. That's something you have to train for. It takes years to learn how to steal, to use the cover of the night. It's not easy. You have to practice it. And you need someone who knows what they're doing to teach you. You gotta be aware of everything at once. And you always have to be careful about making noise. You've got to learn to move without noise. And by February of 1978, Richard felt he was finally ready to make the big move to California and flex his prowess in Los Angeles. Since weed was cheap in El Paso, being right there on the Mexican border, he invested his savings in pot so he'd have something to work with as he got his bearings in L.A. 
Richard Ramirez then hopped on a battered Greyhound bus and took off for sunny Southern California. He just turned 18 years old. Act three, West Texas Drifter. Richard Ramirez was well prepared for a life of crime when he arrived in Los Angeles in early 1978. His brother Reuben had already introduced him to the shady drug dealers and fencers of stolen goods that lurked in the Greyhound bus terminal. He was an expert thief and had come with a bunch of marijuana to use to make connections and establish ties. He fell right into life with the thieves, junkies, hobos, and sex workers of Skid Row, finding comfort and a home in the degradation of downtown Los Angeles. He'd stay in cheap, dangerous hotels, like the infamous Cecil and the Frontier, the Huntington and Rosslyn Ford, spending his days in pool halls, porn theaters, and sex shops, stealing cars and cruising about the sprawling environs of Los Angeles, learning how the freeways, highways, and byways intersected. He also fell into hard drugs. While his brother Ruben leaned more towards heroin, teaching Richie how to shoot the stuff up into his veins. Richie loved cocaine. It fueled his excursions, driving all night long, seeking out sex workers for his bizarre fetishes. He loved to have sex with their feet. That was his thing. But deep in his drug-addled mind, he was fermenting an obsession with violent bondage and rape as well. He started shooting up cocaine, getting nearly pure Peruvian flake from a dealer at the Greyhound station. Then, rocketing high on blow, he'd use all he'd learned back in El Paso, searching out quiet, secluded neighborhoods, breaking into homes, stealing what he knew the fences wanted and could easily get rid of. As he binged on cocaine for days at a time, sweating and not bathing, sleeping in porn theaters and stolen cars, his teeth began to rot and he developed a dank and disgusting smell. For a while, he committed burglaries with a jewel thief he'd met in a pool hall named Sandra Hotchkiss. She says they'd shoot up cocaine together and then case houses that looked like the occupants were on vacation, often peeking in the mail slot to see if there was a pile of mail laying there. And if there was, it was always a go. But Sandra says Richard was sloppy and unprofessional, he took unnecessary risks and enjoyed trashing homes, ransacking them and making an unnecessary mess, whereas she preferred to grab the obvious valuables and leave. A clean in and out. She also said that Richard's knowledge of gems and jewelry was sorely lacking, so she stopped working with him. In the summer of 1978, Richard committed his first successful rape. He met a girl in downtown Los Angeles who wanted to score some angel dust, which he was easily able to do. They went back to her apartment, got high, and when she turned down his sexual advances, he beat her, bound her, and sexually assaulted her. He found the experience absolutely thrilling and had no guilt and no regrets whatsoever afterwards. Around this time, Richard was caught stealing a car. He was arrested and ended up serving some time in prison, where he met a guy who said he was a Satanist. Richie, having been raised a strict Catholic, had often wondered over his own spirituality, questioning his place in religion, 
and something clicked. He'd always been attracted to dark, spooky things and what others considered evil. Maybe the devil was the answer that he was looking for when it came to spirituality. If he worshipped the devil and devoted his life to evil, he could be rewarded in hell. The man told Richard that under Satanism, one could do whatever one pleased. Commit any crime, rob, steal, murder, rape. It was all good according to the Church of Satan. Which, by the way, is absolute fucking bullshit. Richie claims he read the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey and became a devout Satanist. But, you know, I wonder if he actually read this book at all. To be clear, the Church of Satan does not condone murder and crime. It doesn't even condone animal sacrifice. They also, unlike Richard Ramirez, do not see the devil as a real entity, but instead as a symbol, a metaphor. The word Satan is Hebrew for adversary, which is how the Church of Satan sees the term. An adversary against hypocritical religious dogma, embracing the more animalistic nature of humanity as a means of spiritual freedom, rebelling against all the rules and constraints Christianity has imposed on humanity. You know, to put it simply, the Church of Satan are atheists and don't believe in a literal devil. They see people who believe in a real devil and worship him as theists, and they call them devil worshippers and not actual Satanists. Basically, Richard was still a Catholic. He believed in all the dogma and spirituality of Catholicism. He just believed he was on the devil's side. But he's still seeing existence through a Catholic worldview, a Catholic lens. He wasn't a Satanist at all. And he would later say things like, Satanists need to have more faith than Christians because Christ was seen and felt. Lucifer has never felt the need to be seen, but in everyone's soul, he can be felt. Which is ridiculous because it's literally a lack of faith that defines a technical, like, modern Satanist. They don't have faith and consider blasphemy a form of freedom against tyranny. And, you know, there's this rumor out there that after Richard Ramirez was caught, the Church of Satan made him an honorary member. Philip Carlos states it as fact. In his book, The Night Stalker, The Disturbing Life and Chilling Crimes of Richard Ramirez. But all this is just never sat right with me. I just can't see it. Anton LaVey may have been a showman and done some wild stunts to attract attention. But making an actual murderer and rapist an honorary member of the church, it just seemed like total bullshit to me. So we reached out to the Church of Satan. I spoke with one Magister Bill. From the Church of Satan, and this is what he said. Quote First, as I'm sure you already know, the Church of Satan has never condoned the beliefs and practices of the criminal Richard Ramirez. He was not a Satanist, but rather, by all accounts, a devil worshiper. Unlike devil worshippers, Satanists view Satan as strictly metaphorical. The Church of Satan also explicitly rejects criminal activity in general. Some interviews claim Ramirez found inspiration in the Satanic Bible, but a look at that, or our other literature, shows that Satanism does not condone his crimes, nor his demented supernatural beliefs. For example, rape is explicitly condemned in the Satanic Bible. There is a false story that has been going around claiming that Zena Le Fay visited Ramirez in prison and made him an honorary member. 
we know this story is blatantly false. Furthermore, Ramirez's conviction as a criminal would have disqualified him from being able to join the organization anyway. So there you have it. That should dispel all those rumors right there and put that urban legend to bed. No, Richard Ramirez was never made an honorary member of the Church of Satan, and they do not and have never condoned his crimes. But although Richard Ramirez obviously didn't understand what actual Levian Satanism was or what it believed, Richard did supposedly make a pilgrimage to San Francisco after getting out of jail to pay his respects to Anton LaVey, who later remembered him, saying, quote, I thought Richard was very nice, very shy, end quote. So you see this one around a lot, and I, I dug and dug trying to find out if this was true, if the quote was real, what the story was. And I finally found a statement from Anton LaVey's grandson about the event. And here's what happened, according to him. Richard had apparently driven to San Francisco and gone to Anton's house. It's like this really cool all-black Victorian on 6114 California Street. It's called simply The Black House. And at that time, the church was not open to the public. So Richard just drove around and around, finally parking in front of the house and just sitting there staring at it. And Anton LaVey noticed the car. So he went out and asked him what he wanted. Richard said he, he just wanted to meet him. So Anton LaVey said, okay, now you've met me. Get going, which he did. And that was it. That was the entirety of their meeting. Interesting. Um, regardless, Richard Ramirez began to worship his concept of Satan in his heart, not as an adversary against false morality and hypocritical dogma as the Church of Satan does, but as a form of ultimate evil and darkness as viewed in the Catholic Church. Richard saw an actual being, a horned devil that dwelled in an underworld of fire and brimstone, and his drug-addled mind began to believe he was working under the protection of this devil, and that when he died, he would be rewarded for his evil in hell. Emboldened by his belief that he was working in concert with the Prince of Darkness and under supernatural protection, he committed his first known murder, an utterly savage and depraved act, committed on April 10th, 1984, right there in San Francisco. Mei Leung was a nine-year-old girl searching for a dollar she'd lost in an apartment building in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Richard encountered her and convinced her to go to the basement with him to retrieve it. Once there in the basement, he beat, strangled, and raped the little girl before stabbing her to death with a switchblade and hanging her naked body from a pipe by her blouse. This murder would go unsolved until 2009, when DNA evidence matched Richard Ramirez to the crime 25 years after it had been committed. Which leaves the chilling and lingering question, how many murders did Richard Ramirez commit that we are still unaware of? So creepy. After this incredibly horrific act, Richard then returned to Los Angeles, continuing his life as a thief and prowler, breaking into homes, stealing valuables, and selling them to a fence who loitered in the Greyhound bus terminal, shooting up cocaine, hanging out in porno theaters, paying prostitutes to have sex with their feet, 
crashing in hotels so steep with squalor they were like something from a nightmare and always cruising the nights in stolen cars wired out of his skull listening to acdc's night prowler on repeat stalking and hunting act four the valley intruder on June 28, 1984, Richard Ramirez was wandering the night in a stolen car, driving up the 10 freeway and randomly exiting at Glassell Park, trolling along the quiet streets, searching for a home to rob. He eased to a stop on Chapman Street and sat for a moment, feeling the ambiance of the night. He'd shot some pure Peruvian flake cocaine into a vein earlier, and his heart pounded as he listened to the darkness. When he was sure he was unobserved, he slipped silently from the car and traversed along Forest Lawn Memorial Park, lurking in the shadows, admiring the light from the stars falling on the tombstones. He stopped at a rundown, two-story pink apartment building, slipped on his gardening gloves, and approached apartment number two, where he saw an open window. He pried the screen off, his hands trembling from the cocaine pulsating through his system, and then silently lifted himself up and crept inside. Once inside the tiny apartment, his eyes growing accustomed to the darkness, Richard cast his penlight about and could plainly see there was nothing of any value. It was a waste of time. There was nothing to steal in this place. He crept into the bedroom where 79-year-old widow Jenny Vincal lay sleeping. Seeing her there, a sexual charge ran through him, a charge that fueled an overwhelming bloodlust, and he removed his razor-sharp six-inch hunting knife and plunged it into her chest. The old woman awoke screaming. He covered her mouth with his gloved hand, lifted her chin, and plunged the knife into her throat then slashed across from ear to ear, just like his cousin Mike had taught him. The stab and slash method that would cut both corroded arteries and the windpipe, guaranteeing a kill. As Jenny Van Cow coughed and gagged on blood, Richard Ramirez yanked down the blankets and stabbed the 79-year-old woman three more times. He felt fantastic afterwards. Amazing. He thought the devil would be happy and stayed in the apartment over an hour, gulping down glasses of water, ecstatic at the smell of death and blood. Eventually, he took a small portable radio and strolled right out the front door, into the night, slipping back into his stolen car and disappearing into the maze of freeways. Thinking the crime over later, it became clear to him that the cocaine was a hindrance, causing him to shake, making his movements unsure. And he decided to give the drug up. He didn't need it anymore anyway. He found a new high. The ultimate aphrodisiac and stimulant. Murder. And now that he'd developed the taste, he wanted more. Much more. Later saying, Murder is the ultimate high. I love to kill people. I love to watch them die. I would shoot them in the head and they would wiggle and squirm all over the place and then just stop or I would cut them with a knife and watch their faces turn real white. I love all that blood. Fucking hell, man. He's so scary. 
On March 17th, 1985, Richard bought a 22 caliber revolver from a thief selling stolen goods at the North Hollywood Greyhound Terminal. He knew that a 22 was the preferred weapon of assassins, as a close-range headshot caused the bullet to bounce back and forth inside the skull, tearing apart the brain. He then stole a car from a gas station, hopping in and taking off when the owner went to pay, then headed out onto the Los Angeles freeways, eager to put his new toy to use. It was then he spotted Marie Hernandez, a pretty young girl with large brown eyes, driving her gold Camaro home from dinner with her boyfriend. He followed her as she pulled into a new condominium community on Village Lane. As Maria pulled into her garage, Richard parked and brazenly headed right up, ducking under the garage door as it shut, losing his prized ACDC hat as he did, lifting up his new twenty-two revolver. As the door shut and Maria turned to see the intruder, he fired at her face. She instinctively lifted her hands, and in an absolute miracle, the bullet slammed into the keys in her hands and ricocheted off. It's, it's absolutely insane. The bullet literally deflected off the keys in her hand, but she instinctively fell to the ground and just played dead. Assuming he'd killed her, Richard strolled into the condominium, spotting Maria's roommate, Dale Okazaki, as she ducked behind the kitchen counter. Knowing she'd soon peek up, Richard waited patiently, and sure enough, she lifted her head to glance around, at which point he shot her right in the forehead, killing her instantly. He then casually walked to the front door and strolled out. Meanwhile, Maria, thinking he'd come out the garage where he'd come in from, had run to the front of the condominium and was standing there when he came out. Richard saw Maria, stared at her, astounded that she was alive lifting up the revolver as she shouted, Oh, please don't, please don't kill me. Please don't shoot me again. And oddly, he did as she asked, lowering the gun and hurrying off to his stolen car and driving off. But his bloodlust was not sated, and he was infuriated he'd lost his favorite hat. It, it was a cool hat. But on the freeway at Monterey Park, he noticed Veronica Yu, a 30-year-old law student, as he stalked her, following closely behind her, she noticed him and pulled her car to the side to get a better look at him as he passed. And then she pulled behind him and began to follow him. At a red light, he got out of the car and walked up to her as she demanded to know why he was following her. I'm not following you, he said. I thought I knew you. She told him he was a liar and she was going to call the police, at which point he reached in and tried to pull her out the window. She struggled against him, locking the door as he attempted to open it. But when he noticed the passenger door was unlocked, he leapt across the hood of the car, opened it, and immediately shot her in the side, under her right arm. She then threw open her car door, lurching out as he shot her again in the lower back, before she fell to the street, bleeding out and crying for help. Richie laughed, called her a bitch, and got into his stolen car, then headed out onto the maze of Los Angeles freeways. Now, oftentimes, we cover police bumbling investigations, choosing to ignore marginalized people, letting their egos have dangerous criminals go free. But luckily, today, we will not be doing that. And instead, we have 
a legendary duo who worked tirelessly to capture this ruthless and evil murderer. These guys are really like something out of a movie. They are Detective Gil Carrillo and Sergeant Frank Salerno. Detective Gil Carrillo of Los Angeles Sheriff's Homicide was assigned to the case of Dale Okazaki. He was the youngest of the homicide detectives, a big burly guy of Mexican heritage, a Vietnam War vet, with a boyish face and a goofy smile, a friendly glint in his eyes. What struck Detective Carrillo about the murder was the randomness. He'd studied sex killers in classes with the FBI and knew that murders could be sexually motivated even if no signs of sexual assault are present. He felt that this was a lust murder and the killer would strike again, though it was really just a gut feeling he had. But his instincts will be confirmed when ballistics reported the rounds from both Dale Okazaki and Veronica Yu had been fired from the same gun. Detective Carrillo then sought the advice of one Sergeant Frank Salerno. Sergeant Salerno was the son of Italian immigrants and of small stature compared to the huge bulk of Gil Carrillo, was famous for having run the Hillside Stranglers Task Force. His understanding of serial killers was legendary, as was his stubbornness and dedication, earning him the nickname the Bulldog, because when he got hold of something, he didn't let go. Sergeant Frank Salerno heard Detective Gil Carrillo out about the strange feeling he had about these two crimes. But at this point, it was just speculation. Eventually, though, as more and more connected murders began to dot the landscape and the entire Los Angeles area fell into panic and fear, these two men would eventually join forces and work tirelessly to identify and apprehend the murderer that would become known as the Night Stalker. Act 5. The Walk-In Killer. After killing Dale Okazaki and Veronica Yu, Richard Ramirez began to think long and hard about who he was and what he wanted to do with his life. He felt good about his relationship with the devil, thought Lucifer was guiding him and protecting him. But Richard felt he needed to fully dedicate himself to evil, to be as evil as humanly possible, and completely commit to murder. Murder was the ultimate high, better than shooting 80% pure Peruvian flake cocaine into a main vein to the heart and brain. And he felt that the more grotesque and savage, the more sadistic and cruel his crimes were, the more he'd be protected by Satan and rewarded in an afterlife in hell. He developed a plan. He'd slowly save enough money to buy a house. Now that he wasn't spending all his money on cocaine, it should be easy. He'd get himself a house with a basement. He'd convert into a torture room. There, he can make snuff films and sell them on the black market. He'd seen how coveted and expensive some of the more hardcore and violent pornography was in the seedy Los Angeles sex shops, how it was often kept off the shelves and sold only to elite customers. He felt rape and murder films would fetch him a pretty penny. It seemed like a good, honest way to make a living. This is what was running through his head on March 26th, as he drove through the warm Southern California night, hunting in a stolen Toyota, slipping in and off the tangled black web of highways, stretching from the beaches 
to the eastern desert and northern hills. Richard Ramirez pulled onto the San Gabriel River freeway, cruising with no particular direction in mind, a master thief burning inside with the desire to torture, kill, and rape in the name of Satan. Swinging by the Whittier neighborhood, he remembered a house he'd once robbed there, over a year ago, how wealthy the occupants appeared to be. He grinned, thinking, yeah, they sure seemed rich. Maybe you should give them a little visit again. Which is, like, totally terrifying, because you think once you get robbed, the intruder isn't going to come back. Like, lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. Only it does. And no one is safe with this guy. At 2 a.m., Richard Ramirez pulled onto Strong Avenue and eased to a stop in front of the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. As was his custom, he sat in his car and felt the night, listened, focused on the energy. It was perfect. Overcast, a crescent moon, meaning lots of darkness to conceal him. The night was quiet, all the houses dark, not another car parked on the street, ensuring an easy getaway. He slipped snake-like out of the stolen Toyota, silently pushing the door shut, and eyed the brick one-story house that sat before him, surrounded by a white picket fence. There was a light on in the front window, and Richard slunk through the shadows and to it, peering in, where he spied Vincent Zazara sleeping on a plaid couch in front of the television. Richard then crept to the back of the house, careful not to bump into anything in the backyard, moving with stealth on the balls of his feet, low to the ground like his cousin Mike had taught him all those years ago. He spied into a back window and saw 44-year-old Maxine Zazera soundly sleeping in bed. The sight of the woman sleeping there before him, so vulnerable and unsuspecting, caused his brain to explode with endorphins. Walking further into the backyard, he spotted a small window at the southeast corner of the house. It looked like the type of tiny window that would be opened and closed regularly to help ventilate the house, bring in some fresh air. So he figured it was unlocked, but it was up high, too high for him to reach. So he used a plastic five-gallon bucket he found to stand on and was just able to pry the screen off, press his gloved hands to the glass, and ease it upwards. Just as he'd suspected, the small window was unlocked and easily slid open. He wormed his way up into the house, finding himself in a small laundry room. He sat crouched there, feeling out the night, controlling his breathing, listening, an utterly alert predator. He then unlaced his shoes and slipped them from his feet, creeping forward in his socks for maximum silence. Gingerly, in stockinged feet, Richard stepped to Vincent Zazera, sleeping peacefully on the sofa in front of the television, pulled the twenty-two revolver from his waistband as he moved, aiming in the combat position his cousin had taught him, and firing a bullet into the left side of Vincent's head, right above his ear. The small-caliber bullet zigzagged through Vincent's brain, ricocheting off his skull, cutting through the corroded artery, the final beats of his heart, sending squirts of blood out the entrance wound three feet where they splattered against the wall. 
Richard then stormed into the bedroom where Maxine was rising up from sleep, awakened by the gunshot, blinking and confused. He slapped her across the face, screaming, Don't look at me! Where's the money? Where's the jewelry? Maxine, an attorney known for her strong will, was defiant and demanded he get the hell out of her house. So he began to pummel her, then forced her onto her stomach and tied her hands together with a necktie he grabbed from a closet and gagged her. As Richard went around the house, disabling the phones, ransacking the bedroom, searching drawers for diamonds, gold, cash, little did he know that Maxine was working her wrists free of her bonds and that she had a shotgun under the bed, a shotgun her husband had purchased after they'd been robbed just last year. Richard pulled a pillowcase free and began shoving items into it when he noticed movement from the corner of his eye and turned in stunned wonder as Maxine rolled off the bed and in one fluid motion reached under and grasped the shotgun, rose, lifted the barrel to Richard's head, and squeezed the trigger. Richard blinked at the metallic click of the firing pin, falling on an empty chamber. There was no shell in the gun. It wasn't loaded. Incredulous at the all of this woman, to defy him who walks with Satan, Richard raised his gun, screaming, Bitch! Motherfucker! and shot her three times. He then leapt at her and began to pummel her with his fist and then kick her over and over. Filled with fury and blind anger, he stormed into the kitchen and rustled through a drawer, fist closing on a 10-inch carving knife. Returning to Maxine, he threw her onto the bed, ripped off her nightshirt, and brought the knife down into her ribs, just below the left collarbone, intent on cutting out her heart. But the ribs were a lot tougher to get through than he'd anticipated, so instead he just carved an inverted cross into her. If he couldn't have her heart, what would be the best way to capture her soul? He thought. The eyes! The eyes are the passageway to the soul. Carefully, he cut off her eyelids, then dug into the orbital cavity and pulled her eyeballs free, cutting off the attached optic nerves with his knife. He then grabbed a little box off her dresser and placed the eyes in it, laughing as he did so. Returning to her body, he began stabbing her in the stomach, throat, and pubic area working himself up into a sexual frenzy before sexually assaulting the corpse. He then gathered all the valuables, a VCR, a video camera, jewelry, watches, rings, as well as the shotgun, and shoved them into the pillowcase, and then, covered in blood, calmly strolled out the front door and into the night, walking to his car and disappearing into the freeway, that lay just two blocks away. But as he merged onto the freeway, a police car pulled up behind him. Earlier that day, he'd put a sticker with an American flag that said, love it or leave it, on the stolen car. Knowing cops loved that kind of bullshit, and he hoped the sticker would work tonight. And it did, the cop pulling off at the next exit. As the first smudge of dawn etched itself into the smog-filled sky, Richard Ramirez drove back to his room at the infamous and haunted Cecil Hotel. And, you know, I almost stayed there once. I really wish I had looking back on it. I'm sure everyone probably knows about this place. 
uh, season five of American Horror Story with Lady Gaga is loosely based on that hotel. And of course, they made Richard Ramirez as a character on the show. And of course, the Netflix documentary, Crime Scene, Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. You know, it's just amazing. If you haven't seen that documentary, I highly recommend it. Definitely watch it. But uh, the Cecil is interesting because it has this very ornate lobby, you know, which I've been in. When you're in the lobby, it feels like a, a fancy hotel. They keep the lobby looking really nice. But the rest of the hotel, I mean, it's a complete shithole. Certain floors are worse than others, but the whole place is just, it's, it's bad. It's really nasty. But Richard wouldn't go through the lobby. He knew about the secret back entrance and could go in and out from there. And that night, he came in the back entrance, drenched, head to toe in blood, carrying a crimson-spattered pillowcase full of stolen goods over one shoulder with a jewelry box containing two human eyes in his pocket. He walked up the back steps, stepping over some junkies nodding out, up to his floor, walked calmly down the hall as others shuffled past him, giving him a nod, no one batting an eye, as he started to his door, inserted the key, and went inside to sleep all day after one long, crazy night. And that is where we're going to have to leave it for today, dear listeners. Be sure to tune in next week as we bring you the conclusion to our deep dive on the Night Stalker, including his groupies and future wife. But hey, I'll leave you guys all with one extra little tidbit, though. One for the road. This is a wild one. So the stolen Toyota that Richard was driving that night, so he abandoned it in Hollywood. And the police found it, contacted the owner, and just simply returned it to him. It was never dusted for fingerprints or anything. And I just wonder, like, how much fucking blood do you think was in that car? Can you imagine your car gets stolen and you get it back and it's been used for something as disturbing and brutal as this? Uh, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, some might argue that with the state of my car, it might not be noticeable. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, God, I mean, so it, even after the fact, like once they caught him, it, like nobody ever kind of like circled back and, and looked into this car. It just was done deal. Not, not that back. I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, they yeah, just that's... found it and they didn't realize. And I don't know. I mean, you know, it has, who knows what the fuck was in there, man? Yeah, gnarly. Uh, well, I do have to say there there is, it's strange because, I mean, we've covered so many fascinating cases and i've seen the netflix documentary the night stalker that actually i i remember gill i mean i think both detectives are in it but i specifically remember gill um and his uh his very um oh what's the word i want to use just personable and fascinating like take on everything uh but yeah i definitely saw it and I definitely know all about this. And I watched season five of American Horror Story and I've read a bunch of stuff about, but it, it's it's kind of like the Ted Bundy case for me. Like there's just something to these two cases that more than ever, I, I always find myself getting like dragged back into 
just how terrifying and fascinating it is. Like, I kind of want to watch the documentary again tonight, which would be a crazy waste of time because there's plenty of other awesome true crime documentaries that I need to catch up on. But yeah, it's just... I mean, it's a good documentary, but it doesn't focus on him as a person. It doesn't really talk about his childhood. It doesn't talk about his parents, his parents' spiritual beliefs. You know, that's the part I find really fascinating. They mentioned his cousin Mike briefly, they don't really yeah that's a good point because i didn't know nearly as much about mike before we did this podcast so that he was not covered as much in that documentary yeah it's all about gill and salerno and uh, um how they solve the case or help solve it but uh thanks so much for listening everybody we will catch you next week and you know um if you want to reach out to us say hey tell us a uh, case you think we should cover Send us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we will be back next week with more Richard Ramirez, the Nutstalker.